Welcome to the Comfy Living Podcast, where you'll learn how to become a better entrepreneur in the short-term rental space with Airbnb. Listen in as we interview our expert colleagues, Joshua Adeboye and Norman Hamilton, and take advantage of their years of experience that will help you take your rentals to a whole new level. All right, guys, I have Ashok and Ashok from Best Last Tenant LLC here. And uh, just a quick introduction for Ashok. Ashok is a former touring professional musician who's released several albums and has performed many projects for Chicago, from Chicago to New York. He's also had a long career in software sales and currently works for a web development slash cloud hosting solution based out of Paris, France. Best Last Tenant or BLT was born from him short-term renting his first floor condo in Chicago to make some extra money. Then after that, he relocated to Houston and basically turned it into a full-on arbitrage business with his two best friends and business partners. And currently, Best Last Tenant or BLT has 12 apartments in their portfolio and they're looking to expand to 30 at least. As you guys can see, Ashok has been doing this for quite some time and he's a seasoned uh, short-term rental investor ranging in multiple cities. Just glad to have you here, man. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for having me, Norman. Yeah, that's pretty much in a nutshell there. And just to correct, BLT Best Last Tenant has 10 apartments right now. I have two properties I own that's outside the company. So sorry for the confusion there. But um, yeah, it's okay, man. But uh, yeah, no, I'm doing great. And I appreciate you. Appreciate you having me on, man. Awesome, man. Appreciate the clarification. So, I mean, let's jump right into it, man. Like, do you mind telling us how you got started in short-term rentals, Airbnb, Verbo, et cetera, and direct bookings? And just to add on a little bit to that, because I know you're more seasoned, like what's in it that's keeping you going? Like what's driving you for it to like grow from one, 10 units. And now you said you have two more that you uh, have yourself. Yeah, no, it actually started kind of innocently. I was living in Chicago, which is my hometown. And I have a duplex condo there. Uh, one floor is separated from the other. I had heard that people were making extra money just kind of doing this renting spare rooms and whatnot. So I just hired a girl in Chicago to who was doing Airbnb to consult me real quick, uh, just a couple hundred bucks. She showed me how to list the second floor and, and make some extra money. And um, that's kind of how I started in it. It wasn't like some calculated decision that I'm going to turn this into a business or anything. But from there, as you mentioned, I'm relocated to Houston for several reasons. I kept the condo in, in Chicago and had it going as an Airbnb. And I bought a house here in Houston that has a first floor kind of in-law suite with its own entrance and it's sectioned off in the house. And I thought, why not Airbnb that room as well? And, and between the two, maybe that'll cover a lot of my mortgages. So that kind of started me in the whole thing. And I believe that was like 2015 or 16, I think. But at that point, my two good friends, my best friends in Chicago were both curious about the the business. And we had jokingly said we should buy a house together um, and try doing this. And the jokes turned more serious and they flew down. We went and looked at houses in Houston. We thought it'd be easier to do this in Texas than Illinois. And uh, I had caught wind of this, uh, of Sean, actually. We all know Sean Rakadish probably. And he had posted about, you know, that he was doing this and didn't own any property. So that, that really made me curious. And we had a call with him and explained, he explained the model of rental arbitrage. And, and basically we decided to give it a go and said, we don't see how we could scale a business buying properties but this seemed very scalable to us. So, and here we are, you know, two years later with 10 apartments, we'd probably have more if it wasn't for COVID putting kind of the, the brakes on things for a little bit there. But uh, well, we're back in full on profit mode and, and looking to expand um, this year for sure. 
So that's kind of a long and short story, I guess. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Like, and I think we kind of got into it, got into the business for a similar reason. Like we were looking for ways to, you know, make some extra money. And then it kind of just turned into what you see today, just like, you know, having a whole bunch of properties and just doing the darn thing. And also a big shout out to Sean, because I know Sean's definitely put a lot of people onto this business model in general. But like you mentioned that, I think I heard 2015 or 2016. So I guess a question for you is like, what has changed between 2015, 2016 and 2021 with regards to like short-term rentals? Like I know there's way more like tools and software that are out now than what used to be available back then. But like just as someone who's been doing it for so long, like what have you seen? Obviously, like, you know, COVID's happened, but like what else have you seen? Yeah, I think the number of tools has increased a lot. I guess that's a natural kind of progression, right? You have a a business model that more and more people are jumping on. You're going to have these sort of other things that tie into it that start to propagate, right? So pricing tools, definitely. Channel managers, things like that. We've seen there's so many choices now with those. And COVID, obviously, you mentioned, we, you know, that's we won't get too into that other than the obvious things that affects that that had. But I've seen different guest population too. Maybe that's tied to COVID as well. But we are seeing a lot more staycationers and locals, meaning people maybe 100 miles out, et cetera, wanting to just come and spend some time in the city. And COVID really kind of exaggerated or pushed forward the remote worker situation. So a lot more people are working remote and they're young and they're they're mobile. They want to kind of just come hang out in Houston for a month or two and then go on to Atlanta and hang out for a month there. And so we're getting, we're seeing a lot of those types of guests too, where they're just leveraging, being able to work from anywhere to to travel the country and right. to not have to own furniture and sign an apartment lease themselves and deal with all that headache. And they can just kind of bop in and out of people like ours places. <laughs> and we can give them a place to stay and then they can move on. So I definitely fall into that category myself because I've definitely taken tons of workations or staycations during this pandemic, like doing a week in Mexico or like, you know, doing a week in a different part of Texas. And then doing a week in Dallas because of the snowstorm that happened uh, two weeks ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's a great freedom that a lot of people I think are getting to have now. And they're certainly taking advantage of it. We've seen that guest population increase a lot at our apartments. So why not? My day job is with a remote company. They're fully remote company. So that didn't change at all when COVID hit and uh, they allow us to work wherever we want. So that, that's great. So as someone who's working another job on top of uh, hosting your short term, how are you able to manage that? Because that's a question that I'm hearing a lot from new people, especially at the events that we host in Houston, uh, the networking events, a lot of newer people are wondering, hey, how do I manage this with my day job? Uh, how do I maintain that? Like maybe not work-life balance per se, but how do I just balance both? How do I grow the company, like manage my day job? No, it's a good question. I think the answer is twofold. One is automation and two is find a great cleaning crew or person that you trust. <laughs> With automation in relation to that, I think having all your messaging, your check-in instructions, checkout instructions, all that stuff just being sent and pricing being automated if you don't want to spend the time manually pricing. Um, there may be some advantages to that, I don't know, but I've just found life a lot easier using a tool like Wheelhouse to do that. So Really, it's not much of a bandwidth issue when everything's kind of just flowing as it goes. Uh, certainly, having three of us, we can divide and conquer very easily for things. But I'm the only one in Houston. My two business partners are in Chicago. So anything on the ground, 
that happens, I would have to deal with. But so I think that's a huge part of it is learning these tools, setting them up properly. And then I guess the third component to that would be also have a good relationship with the buildings you're in or the landlords you're working with, if it's houses you're doing, because they work with us. They let us know if there's any guest issues or we don't feel guilty or like we're burdening them with maintenance requests, et cetera, because we have a good relationship with them. So quite honestly, once I set up an apartment and it's up and running, I really don't have to visit them very often. My cleaning crew lets me know of anything that needs to be restocked and resupplied and they just do it and bill us. They let us know if the unit smells like marijuana or something like that. So really, I think just assembling the right components and automating as much as you can is going to allow you to to keep your day job while you're building this. Right. And that makes so much sense. So I guess, would you say, and this is probably for some of the newer people as well. So would you say that the the buildings that you're working with, like, would you consider them like business partners effectively? Because like you have a relationship and, you know, you want to maintain a relationship and make sure it's good, you know, and if the building is happy, you know, the, they might give you more units or they might give you intros to like other buildings that they manage as well. Yeah, I think it's the right way to look at it because... It's a relationship beneficial to both sides, right? So, because you're helping with their, keeping their occupancy up, which helps them in a myriad of ways. And they're helping us by giving us more revenue generating units. So yeah, I would say that's a very true, true statement. Right. Is to look at them and as so we, Right. Well, we took a look at your listings and like, it looks like you guys operate more on the luxury side. We like to classify people's properties in general in like different categories where it's like some people they do like strictly like luxury properties that are maybe designed for like, for example, between two to six people, depending on the size of the property. And then some people like to do huge properties that are for like 16 plus people. What's your, what are your thoughts on operating like luxury apartments? Because I think some of your properties are in like, they're in like the River Oaks area or Galleria area, right? Or Midtown? Yeah, no, we have several in Midtown. We have a few on Memorial Drive, right over the bayou. And then we have uh, Med Center as well. But I guess luxury for us, people think of that in different terms, right? But what we really wanted to do was give people all the amenities and options or most of them that a hotel would provide. So we tended to stick with buildings more that had swimming pools, that had workout rooms, things like that, because we wanted to compete with hotel rooms. So we didn't want guests looking at us and saying, yeah, it's a great apartment, but I can spend a little more and have all these other things. So that's kind of where we focused our, our, our eyeballs on was to have those buildings with those amenities. Yeah. I mean, they're nice buildings. They're well-maintained and well-reputable buildings here in Houston. So I guess you could call it a business model. We're not, I know there's a lot of people doing less than luxury places and going for more of the budget travelers and the younger crowds, but I'm not saying we would rule that out entirely, but it's not something we focused on. We wanted to have, give people more of that hotel experience if we could. Yeah, of course. And I can personally say I'm not really a fan of the budget B&B model anyway, because usually with that kind of model, you don't tend to attract the, at least in Houston, you don't usually get the best guests at a certain <laughs> price point. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. Right. No, you're, you're correct. And I mean, that's that happened to me in Chicago as well. My condo, we dropped prices for COVID and I got like five or six bad intention guests in a row. It wasn't great to deal with. So we kind of want to stay out of that whole market if we can. I'm not right. saying, as you know, it can make you money for sure, but it's just not where we're at right now. And I don't anticipate us going that way. I think we're going to try to stick with these more, these buildings in Houston that are 
they're a little more on the hotelier side of things. Right, man. And I mean, frankly, I think that like the money that you could make doing the budget model, you spend most of it on like security stuff, like, you know, like the, <laughs> the point systems, like the minute devices, like monitoring all that stuff, just getting somebody there. We've personally found that like when we catered, when we did more luxury or when we did more like work kind of workation kind of accommodations for the people who are just coming to work, we've gotten higher quality guests. And on top of the fact that we've gotten higher quality guests, like we've definitely been able to command a higher than a normal price than when we were just trying to do like the steep discounts or just price to get people in. Don't get me wrong. Like you do what you have to do. I don't necessarily think it's best to primarily cater towards that. Although like I'm not knocking people who do, I don't have time for that. You know? <laughs> no, I don't blame you. I agree with you. I think uh, it's a different market and you got to run it a little different. So yeah, I think the quality guests direct correlation with pricing. We saw that with COVID. We dropped our prices because we had to. We were just like, we got to stay alive here. We can't be coming out of pocket to pay rents and, and things like that. And the problems exponentially just went up when we did that. So we had a lot of pot smokers. We had a lot of noise issues, had drug dealers and et cetera, et cetera. So once we got over that initial shock of COVID and, and realized that that maybe we shouldn't be doing this. It's probably not worth it. We just trusted our our software to price it and we left it at that. And, and sure enough, we got booked and we had better guests. So definitely more preferable, I'll say in that way, for sure. Right. And you said you're using Wheelhouse, right? For pricing? Wheelhouse uh, was the one I was familiar with doing it here and in Chicago. So I figured let's just use what I know. And uh, it's worked really well. I've done some looking into the other ones. The person managing my Chicago place for a while used Price Labs. So I'm familiar with Price Labs as well. What I gathered and found is that Wheelhouse's data tends to be a little more robust, a little up-to-date more. So we've just stuck with it. And it's really, we've seen an increase in revenues, increase in bookings, et cetera. So we're going to continue to use it. And pricing manually is something... I tried in a few different forms here and there. Admittedly, I probably don't know all the nuances of it, but we just didn't find it really any better than that. So we decided to stick with it and it's been going great now. I mean, the last five months we're, you know, we're at like 90% occupancy basically and, and getting highest rate possible that we can. So it's a great tool. Nice. In Midtown, I know I'm kind of deviating a little bit here, but in Midtown, what would you say your primary travel demographic is? Like, for example, in the med center, like we're seeing lots of people come for work for uh, obvious reasons or going there for treatment. What would you say your primary travel demographic is in, in Midtown, in River Oaks, and I mean, even in the med center for you? Yeah. So med center, the obvious ones, travel nurses, and then we were getting people coming for treatment as well. We did have a couple people who were building houses, moving to Houston, building houses and, and rented us long-term while they were doing that or looking for houses. So, and that kind of bleeds over to Midtown as well. Midtown, we're getting more of the, gosh, we're getting a lot of, you know, kind of a mixed bag, really. We're getting a lot of people coming in, like I said, staycationers to enjoy Houston, birthday parties, uh, visiting family, et cetera. We do get the travel nurses there as well. And we also get a lot of remote workers who are here long-term for various assignments and things like that. So so Midtown, I would say, is a mixed bag, and that's why it's appealing to us, because it really kind of is close to everything and it appeals to everyone in a way. That's why we've kind of grown our business there a lot in Midtown. We're just seeing that every stripe of character is, is booking it, and we're fine with that, obviously. <laughs> so I'm not in River Oaks yet. I'm hoping to be there soon. 
thanks to your referral, Norman. <laughs> we can maybe do some business there. We'd like to grow there because I know that area is, is great. Um, and Memorial Drive, my place is there. Kind of the same mixed bag, I would say. Again, that location-wise, it's pretty optimal. Reaching Galleria, reaching Med Center, reaching Midtown, reaching downtown, reaching the stadiums, et cetera. So, so good locations obviously are key. And my room in Edo, I'm in East Downtown. You know, before COVID, I was pretty much booked every night because I'm less than a mile from the convention center and from Toyota Center and from Astros Ballpark and all those things. So people love staying that close. They can park there and just walk over to those things. So when that stuff comes back, I'm anticipating a very, very fruitful year here for us all, I think. Right. And it just got rid of the, well, I didn't get rid of it, but you know, the mass thing is going away. They're trying to return everything back to normal. So, I mean, I'm expecting to be like fully booked for most of the summer. In fact, like, you know, we, like we're hundred percent booked right now. So we've got to raise our prices and pick up some more units. We're talking about travel demographics and whatnot. Have you guys considered getting a direct booking site or anything like that? Like, are you, do you guys plan on expanding to multiple platforms? What is that? What's that looking like for you and your company? Yeah, no, great question. Yeah, so we are getting a lot of direct bookings now. That that kind of entails using Airbnb as more of the kind of the lead generation side of it. So the inquiry comes in, we'll have them book with us. And then when we find out that they want to stay for an extended period of time, we will deal with them directly. So we don't have a site yet, a site where they can book us, but we do run Facebook ads and we do have a Facebook page and that has kind of served as our direct booking site, honestly, because we're drawing eyeballs to it. All of our listings are there. They can click on them and go and book us. So I guess indirectly, we do have a direct booking site, but um, that's something we will be building out eventually here, I think. We haven't felt a super pressing need to do that yet at the scale we're at, but as we grow, I think that'll be something we look at multi-platform too. We're, we're about to go live on VRBO, just a couple little things we're working out there as far as our listings and, and how to set them up. But so far, I mean, we've pretty much done it all Airbnb and direct, and we have gotten some bookings on furnished finder, not a ton, but we've gotten a couple here and there and they were longer bookings. So that's a decent tool. I wouldn't say it's, you know, a flood of new business or anything, but certainly worth it for the price you pay for it to be on it, I think. But, but yeah, so Building a direct booking site is on our, our roadmap here for this year, I think, and we'll we'll get to it here soon, I'm sure. All right. Well, so it's funny you mentioned Furnish Finder. So what we've seen with Furnish Finder is that I think a lot of people are expecting Furnish Finder to be similar to Airbnb, as in like people are just coming to you with tons of requests to book. What we're seeing Furnish Finder, the value that we're getting from Furnish Finder is actually in the is in the lead generation. So like we'll get leads from Furnish Finder, but like you have to actually chase those leads down, like almost like in a cold calling kind of sense, like traditional sales, get them into your funnel and then you close on the deal. Like that's, that's kind of like the value that we've seen come from Furnish Finder. So at first, like, you know, when we first started, we didn't really like it. But then when we realized that like, hey, we need to diversify our business, like we kind of realized the value in uh, Furnish Finder that way, especially when it comes to finding people who are traveling for work. Like once we pretty much switched to that kind of model, like We've literally been very successful, especially in the med center, getting people booked. I know a lot of people are saying, including me, like it's hard to, not necessarily it's hard to find travel nurses who are willing to pay uh, short-term rental prices, but it's really just understanding like the different agencies and understanding which agencies pay the most. And then just going after those nurses that are working at those agencies that pay the most, because then they'll be able to pay those short-term rental prices. But 
I was wondering if you guys were doing anything to offer additional value um, in your uh, stays. Like, are you guys like upselling anything? Do you guys like send your clients or your guests to restaurants? Like, are you guys doing anything like guidebooks, anything, just like anything to offer extra value? Um, are you guys offering anything like that? No, you know, not yet. And I like your strategy with Furnish Finder, use it as lead gen. One of my partners explored sublet.com too. I think we got a booking or two from there. And he's doing a similar approach with that. He's been handling most of our direct booking stuff and he's gotten pretty savvy at that. So I think that's something we'll explore on the agency side of it too. We've talked about that, maybe calling up to them and HR departments of hospitals, things like that. So these are things we are wanting to put in play and I'm sure we will at some point. They've just floated around as ideas thus far because we've been booked. So necessity, I think will breed that action hopefully. But, but yeah, getting back to your question, we haven't gone down the road of the whole experiences thing yet. We just find our kind of, our business is a very simple kind of clean message and our apartments are simple and clean in that. We're giving you a very comfortable place to stay in the best neighborhoods and buildings in Houston. And we have found, and I've found that most people don't really need or want that kind of information. If they ask us for restaurant tips or anything like that, we're happy to give them, but we're not offering those as any kind of extra service or anything like that. No, at least from our experiences, most of the guests who come in kind of know what they want to do and where they're going. They have plans. The longer guests definitely do ask some of those things, but there's been talk of that too. Teaming up with restaurants to offer discounts to our guests, things like that. A lot of that stuff kind of put got put on hold with COVID, obviously. So I'm sure we'll revisit some of that stuff too and, and see if we can form some alliances there. I think it's a good idea. Definitely can't hurt. Definitely. So just backtracking a little bit, what would you say, like everything's going great because we're going into high season, especially in Houston, but uh, just uh, getting started, what would you say are your, like, were your biggest struggles with uh, building up your listings? I know you spoke about like, you know, you did a couple consultations with people, how to get started and how to just break into this, I guess, industry. But what would you say was your biggest struggle in the past? And what are your current struggles now, if you have any? Yeah, I guess, you know, starting off, obviously, there's a learning curve, learning Airbnb's idiosyncrasies with the platform. We all know them, right? You know, how many times you open your app and something's not working and you're like, what the heck is going on here? Um, but just learning the platform, I think, listing your first place, I, kind of figuring out what's the best way to title it, what's the best way to write something, write a listing description out, all those things, I think, take some time and maybe some monkeying around with to get it right. Uh, once we got it right, we just replicated it. So if it's working, keep it going kind of thing. And again, automation is key. I think automating everything, learning how to integrate all those tools and use them properly. There's a learning curve. So I think the biggest thing is patience with it. There's a lot of people I think who want to jump in this because they think they can make a lot of money fast. And yes, you can make money at this, but it does require investing money, time and energy into it. I mean, it's a business like any other, right? So there is no get rich quick in the world I found and doing things methodically and slow is the best way. So start off with one place and kind of master it, make all your mistakes on it, get that one place really humming and then kind of get the, you know, the wider eyes to expand it from there. But I think jumping into it and going to a building and saying we want 10 apartments right off the bat and never having done it would probably be a mistake because... There's a lot of little things to kind of master and, and to make sure you're aware of. That would be my advice, I would say. And also, obviously, to have capital, right? Because uh, your first unit's going to cost you money to furnish. It's going to cost you money to 
to put first month's rent on and start up the uh, the internet and start up all the utilities, et cetera. So having enough capital there to to make sure you can go at least three months or so, have to earn that money back, so to speak, before you start really seeing profit. Right, right. And this is for the beginners too. Like, what is the biggest mistake that you've made as a short-term rental operator to where like you look back at it and you're like, dude, like, what was I thinking? (laughs) I would say a couple things. Number one, being a slave to worrying about every guest leaving a five-star review and pulling your hair out and killing yourself to try to get everyone to do that. It's just not realistic. As you get to hundreds and thousands of stays to have everyone think you're the best things in sliced bread. So I would say understanding your value and knowing what you provide and being comfortable with that, knowing that you can't please everyone. So getting out of that kind of mindset of of micromanaging and worrying about every single guest. Uh, Guests are going to come, they're going to go, and it's going to happen fast and, and furious, so to speak. So the other thing is, I think, using all the filters and, and not operating from a desperate point of view that I just want people in there. And we talked a little bit about it with pricing, but using the filters on Airbnb, don't let anyone book you, instant book you if they don't have a verified ID or if they don't have a profile photo and if they have no reviews, you know, set those filters where you're not going to allow that. They're going to have to inquire first because it's worth it. I mean, just open the floodgates to everybody you're going to invite trouble. So kind of know that and be confident that if you've selected your location right and you have a good place and you've done good photos and all that stuff, you will get booked and just be a little more you know, judicious about, about who you're going to let in and out of these apartments because one wrong guest can ruin your business and ruin your relationship. So, so I'd say those are kind of some of the beginner things to kind of watch out for is to, to make sure that you're setting up your business in a way that, that attracts the kind of people you want in there and not being desperate for just any bookings. And dude, I definitely agree with that 100% because even Sean's spoken about it where like, you know, he had the wrong guest stay in a unit during the 4th of July, you know, and it got into a fight with the leasing office and he lost, I think like 10 units, Yeah, and, um, <laughs> 10 units because of one incident. So like definitely like for those new people listening, like have your criteria and stick to that criteria. For example, like in the med center at one point, people were charging $40 a night for their one bedrooms in the med center. And like, I showed Josh that and like, we had a meeting and we were like, these are the numbers that we want to hit as our business. And like, we're not going to compete with people who are doing $40 a night. Like, why would I compete with people who are charging $40 a night and getting the worst guests in a property? So, I mean, we sat down, we had a meeting and we were like, look, like you guys can compete for the short-term guests at $40 a night. We're going to go for long-term guests at 2,400 a night. (laughs) And like, no, we literally did that. And I'm not sure if it was a gap in the market or what, but like the second we switched over to just doing those longer term bookings, especially multi-platform, like we literally were getting, just getting back to back long-term bookings. So it seemed like maybe everybody was going for short-term bookings. And like, that was the demographic, especially in the med center that was getting overlooked because like I can show you my calendar right now, it's full of long-term bookings. And I can show you when we switched over from those short-term bookings to those long-term bookings. So maybe that's a, and Airbnb is actually like trying to market towards those long-term bookings now. So, I mean, maybe it could be a combination of that. Like people just not paying attention to market trends, not paying attention to what the OTAs are trying to do to get those long-term guests. And then it could just be people just not offering or not pricing right for that particular uh, demographic, man. So like, I agree with you 100%. To get back on track, like what is your exit strategy with your uh, properties? Like 
you guys plan on holding on to them for a long time and pivoting your business model or diversifying your business model? Because like tons of people have figured out how to combine this model with uh, traditional real estate. You know, they're doing like they're doing the, the burr method and then they're doing short term rentals on top of the burr. Like they're doing really interesting equity plays. So like what do you guys plan to do in the future? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I think we don't see any reason to pivot away from the arbitrage model, but we do have plans to eventually divert some of the cash flow from this business into owning real estate and assets. So probably what we'll do is we'll scale this up to, you know, what we feel is appropriate. I personally don't think arbitrage is something we want to get into with two, 300 units or anything like that. But, you know, in that 30 to 50 or 60 range, it's feasible um, with the three of us. And then with profits from there, we're looking to buy properties and then we'll operate those properties as short-term rentals as well. And that way we're owning some assets too. So we're not just leasing units because that as solid as I think it is, and it's going to be around for a long time. You never know with that. If you don't have any ownership stake in them, then they could switch property management companies and say, we don't want you here anymore. Who knows? So yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, we look at it as this model will be kind of the cash cow that funnels us growing the business into the equity side of things, purchasing houses, possibly one day looking at purchasing a a 15 unit or 12 unit apartment building and turning it into a full on short term rental situation, something like that we've talked about. We've also talked about looking at purchasing lots and owning lots and selling them to the highest bidder for commercial things. Um, in my area in Houston, for example, East downtown, there's a lot of lots available and that area is growing fast. A lot of businesses are slowly coming there and more houses are being built there. So we've talked about maybe buying a lot or two and, and sitting on it and waiting for when the inevitable CVS Walgreens <laughs> pops in there and we have a lot to sell them. So, um, so there's a lot of ways we can divert the cash flow from this other than just paying ourselves and being happy. We're certainly going to do that, but we do have goals of investing this into owning assets as well, for sure. Most definitely. So it's, it sounds like uh, it's just kind of how you the, the business and then you're going to use that capital to just diversify different real estate assets. Yep. Definitely. Definitely makes sense. I always tell people like a lot of people come into this, like with arbitrage and I guess that's just a business thing, right? Like a lot of people come into the business in general, doing one thing, and then as they get that knowledge, as they start learning more things and discovering more things about just business in general, they start seeing like different avenues and like, because they start seeing those different avenues and they have like the business experience with running short-term rentals, like they're able to kind of just like make that pivot because I actually had a friend who was in Seattle, who was doing short-term rentals in Seattle. And we all know how Seattle turned out with the regulations and whatnot, but like he saw that as an opportunity to actually pivot into like cleaning, like revolutionizing cleaning and starting the first, basically he created Uber for cleaners in, in the Seattle market. And he's actually moving to Austin, Texas to do it next in Austin, which is pretty interesting. So like literally like instead of turnover BNB being, turnover BNB is kind of like the market, their service is actually like they're doing the cleaning and like you can rate different cleaners from their service. It's literally like Uber for cleaning. I've never, I've literally never seen anything like it. It's called a, like if you're curious, it's called new NEU, but um, they're doing super good. They've raised VC money. So, I mean, we'll see what happens with them. That's a great idea. Yeah. And this, I mean, I think any real business minded person is going to think that way. They're not just going to rent apartments and just sit back. You know, it's like, uh, we're always looking to grow it into different streams of things. And I think asset ownership is the big one 
if I had to pick a, a fall or a negative of the arbitrage model, it's that because you don't have the assets to borrow against for credit for, you know, if you want to stand up more units or. Right. So owning some property is going to be helpful, I think, in the long run. And I own two properties right now, one in Chicago, one here. Right. So I kind of know, like, you know, what options are available when you own a place. Um, you can you can easily take a HELOC out and get some funding or you can sell the properties and have cash. So we're lucky enough where all three of us have good income that we're, we can self-fund the arbitrage model for the most part. Now we did take on some credit to do the, to get started, but moving forward, we're like easily can fund it ourselves. We don't need to go borrow a big chunk of money and pay all this interest and, and all this stuff. So, but asset ownership, yeah, that's definitely a goal of ours. And looking at, you know, maybe owning a vacation home one day in a different market, in a warm market. Right. That's something I'm very, very curious about because I know those people do extremely well. So, right. So do you guys plan to stay in Texas? Are you guys going to, I know you're in Chicago, but like, do you plan on taking this multi-state or are you just going to keep it inside of Texas? <sighs> yeah, I mean, we're not, certainly not just limiting ourselves to Texas, but I think... For this model, we found that Texas is a very easy state to work in, particularly Houston. But, you know, I think regulation-wise and red tape-wise, Chicago is a lot more complicated with this model. But we are looking at other markets. And for the time being, we're going to stay in Texas. We kind of know the market. I'm here. And we're familiar with where we need to be and stuff like that. But we're looking at other markets. I mean... We'd have to establish some kind of ground team there, at least a, obviously a cleaning crew and someone to be available if there are problems and that kind of thing. So further down the line, yeah, I can see expanding this into other markets. But for now, I don't see any reason to leave Texas or the Houston area immediately. I think we want to get to like 30 to 40 units here and then kind of decide on that probably. Cool, man. Yeah, definitely let me know how that goes. Like, seriously. Because yeah, I'm looking yeah. to, you know, I'm always, we're always looking to pick up units where I was looking to do something different. But is there anything that you wanted to ask me personally or ask my uh, partner? We've pretty much reached the end of the show. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, you know, there's some things I want to ask you, maybe be better offline. But uh, as you and I talked, I was curious about your pricing philosophy and stuff. I, you know, I want to try it. We're not getting a lot of orphan days the way we're doing it. So it's more out of curiosity. I want to see if offering these huge discounts for long stays brings them in more, but we are getting a lot of them now. So I think Wheelhouse accomplishes a lot of that, but yeah, there might, there might be some nuances there that I can learn from you for sure. <laughs> and we could take that offline, obviously. I'm happy to, as we spoke, I'm happy to introduce you to the buildings I'm in. And I appreciate you doing the same, you know, like there's, we can grow, kind of help each other grow together. We're kind of at the same level pretty much. I think you guys have a, a handful of units more than us now, but yeah, I mean, I think that's another thing, right? Is business partnerships too with other operators. I think that can be beneficial for everyone involved too. Who knows one day we can maybe share cleaning crews and save money that way as well. So there's a lot of options there. And I'm sure I'll be picking your brain while you're sitting on the beach in Mexico and asking you some questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, that was just something I wanted to do. Like I used to dream about having units in every city I vacation in. That's a, yeah, that would be the dream, right? Is wherever you go, you have your own place to stay. That'd be great. So yeah, I'm uh, definitely looking forward to uh, hearing more about what you have going on. And, you know, it sounds like you're doing well. We're doing well as well. So good things for us on the horizon, I think. And if we can help each other out, that's even more better. I mean, I, 
you're probably seeing the same thing. I mean, Houston or Texas in general is getting a little saturated, but I find a lot of people kind of come in and come out of this business model. So, right. And yeah, we can talk about, we can talk about that offline, man. Thank you so much for hopping on the show, dude. Like we'd love to have you back in the future when we start incorporating video, but, uh, Thank you guys for listening to the Comfy Living Short-Term Mental Makeover podcast. If you guys have any questions or if you guys have any comments or anything, feel free to send us an email at team at comfylivings.com or you can comment on the respective platform that the podcast posted on. But uh, definitely, if you guys are interested, feel free to follow us on Instagram as well. You can follow me on Instagram at norm.hamilton. You can also follow Joshua at josh.ataboye. And if you have any questions for a show, how can people contact you? Yeah, so you can look up our Facebook page, Best Last Tenant, or you can shoot me an email at Ashok, A-S as in Sam, H-O-K, at bestlasttenant.com. Yeah, I can be reached there and uh, would be happy to give any advice or pointers I can to anyone out there. And appreciate you having me, Norman. It's been uh, fun talking to you and catching up. Uh, Hopefully we can do a happy hour again soon. Yeah, dude, we definitely got to do one. Welcome to the Comfy Living Podcast, where you'll learn how to become a better entrepreneur in the short-term rental space with Airbnb. Listen in as we interview our expert colleagues, Joshua Adeboye and Norman Hamilton, and take advantage of their years of experience that will help you take your rentals to a whole new level.